If you're standing here and you find yourself without a Bible, we'd love to have you have a Bible, and uh, not only to hear the Word, but also to see it with your own eyes. And so there are men making their way down the aisle right now. Just raise your hand, and they'll supply you with a Bible to read along with, with us this morning, and I'll be our joy to do that. Sunday mornings we're looking at the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order, and we come to Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, Verse 46. Now they came to Jericho, and as he, that is Jesus, went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great multitude, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the road begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out, saying, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And then many warned him to be quiet, but he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And so Jesus stood still, commanded him to be called, and then they called to the blind man, saying to him, Be of good cheer, he's calling you. Fickle crowd. In one minute they're scolding him, warning him, and the next now they're all excited for him. And throwing aside his garment, he rose and came to Jesus. And Jesus answered and said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, that I may receive my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus on the road. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for what it's done in our lives. Thank you for its power. Thank you for the strength that comes from it. Thank you for the wisdom that is ours for free from heaven's throne. Anytime we want to open this up, Lord, thank you for the life that simple obedience to your word has produced in our lives. And we just want you to know we never ever tire of giving you thanks for the privilege of being able to learn your word. We pray, Lord, for your spirit to be greatly at work in this room now uh, through the teaching of your word, that you would open up this passage, make it a friend to us, Lord, and we will consider this very well-spent time if for the rest of our lives we're able to open up to this passage and understand what it means to us and what it communicates to us from you. And so we pray that you give us that revelation this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. There is a famous American proverb that declares, seeing is believing. And I don't think that any of us would argue against the fact that there is certainly a considerable amount of truth behind that statement. But I think it's important to also understand that the opposite is true, that there is much in life that must be believed before we will ever see. For example, what great building has ever been built without someone operating under the influence of believing is seeing, without the faith preceding the seeing? What great advancement in medicine has not 
first begun in the heart of some man or some woman operating under the influence of believing is seeing, that faith precedes seeing oftentimes in life. What great painting or work of art has ever been produced without someone operating under the influence of believing is seeing, that belief or faith comes first and the seeing follows. And we can tend to consider seeing is believing as always being superior to believing is seeing, but it isn't always so. When God, the God of the Bible, calls on us to put our faith in Him, our faith in His existence, our faith in His Son for our salvation, He does so on the basis of seeing is believing. The Bible declares that all of the creation that is around us, all that we can see with the naked eye, all that we can see with a telescope, all that we can see with a microscope, all testify to the existence of a Creator. And always behind a creation there is a Creator. The Bible declares that all of the design that we see in this world around us testifies to the fact that there is a great designer behind that design. When we look at the design behind the orbit of the planets in the universe, when we look at the design of the ecosystems of planet Earth that makes life possible on this Earth, when we look at the design of something that seems so simple but is unbelievably complex, the design of just the human eye, when God calls on us to believe in the account of His creation of man, in the persons of Adam and Eve, in that ancient Garden of Eden, and that as a result of their sin, both man and all of God's creation have fallen from perfection to imperfection. God is not asking of us a blind faith to believe this or to believe His Word, but the evidence of man's fallenness and his imperfection is all around the inside of each one of us. It is all around the world that we live in every single day. It's seen in the crime rates of the world. It's seen in the wars that are going on all over the world. It's seen in the wickedness and the oppression and the injustice of the world on international level, national levels, on human and individual scale. He is merely asking for a faith based upon seeing, based upon seeing is believing, seeing preceding faith. But it is equally true that there is also much in a relationship with God and much in, that is required in growing in a relationship with God that will only occur as we are willing to operate under the banner of believing is seeing. That is, when faith will precede seeing in our lives 
as we just simply obey God's Word, whatever the obstacles or whatever the circumstances. I think that so often people look and they think that all of the world is either seeing is believing or they look at Christianity and think all of Christianity is just believing is seeing. It's a little more complicated than that. God is a little more complex than that. It isn't a matter of either or. It is, it is a case of both of those things playing a very important part in any person's relationship with the Lord. And in our passage, we see a case of when believing is seen in the life of a man known affectionately in the Bible as blind Bartimaeus. The context is given to us in verse 46. Jesus is now within a week of ending his three and a half years of public ministry. He is now headed to the city of Jerusalem where he will end up dying on a cross for our sins and three days later being raised from the dead. And while he's on this journey to the city of Jerusalem, we're told that he's accompanied by his disciples, but also accompanied by a great multitude. And one of the reasons that he was accompanied by a great multitude is Jesus is going to the city of Jerusalem, not just any kind of wild time during the year, but he is going to the city of Jerusalem to be crucified at the time of the Jewish feast of Passover. And the law of Moses required of every Jewish male in the land of Israel and in the nations surrounding it that every single year that there were, that when there was the uh, celebrating of that Jewish feast of Passover that they were to come to Jerusalem to celebrate that feast. And so they are coming from all over the land. They are coming from the nations that surrounded Israel. They are coming with their wives. They are coming with their children. And so what you would have during this, this time of the feast is the population of Jerusalem would swell to over a million people in this relatively small uh, city, and all of the roads that would be leading into Jerusalem would just be jammed with people. And Jesus is on one of the main roads that leads to Jerusalem, and that is the road from Jericho to Jerusalem. And Jericho's about 15 miles northeast of the city of Jerusalem. We're told that Jesus is accompanied by this great multitude, and you can imagine how excited this crowd is around Jesus. His popularity is sky high, not among the religious leaders, but among the common people. Put yourself in the place of these common people. Not hard for us to do. Here they are, they wake up. They've been planning now for the whole family to go to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast of Passover. And you think it can't get any better than this. I'm with my husband. I'm with my wife. I'm with my children. I'm with the neighbors. I'm with all of the other people from our village. And we're making our way to Jerusalem to celebrate this annual feast. And you think it can't get any better than this. And then word begins to radiate down the road that you are sharing your trip to Jerusalem with a tremendous celebrity, 
that none other than Jesus Christ of Nazareth with his disciples is on the same road that you are on, maybe just a few moments ahead of you, a few moments behind you, and as the word begins to ripple out in all directions, you can imagine how people slowed down or sped up in order to get sight of him, in order to get near him. The excitement is you can taste it as you, as you read the passage. We're going to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast of Passover and we are traveling with Jesus. Now it's while going through the city of Jericho that Jesus comes to the attention of a man by the name of Bartimaeus. A man who is determined not to miss this opportunity to cry out to Jesus. And we're told in verse 47 of his condition And Bartimaeus' condition is summed up uh, very simply by two words, the word blind and the word begging. And in the ancient world, to be blind, 99% of the time, set your course in life. You are going to beg for the rest of your life for for your sustenance. And so those two things became invariably accompanied one another, blindness and begging. In this passage... Bartimaeus' physical blindness is a picture of the condition of spiritual blindness that every single one of us is born into this world with as descendants of Adam and Eve. There is an entire spiritual realm that operates around us as human beings that we have no understanding or revelation related to its existence. We have no true or real uh, insights into it until the day that we are born again by the Holy Spirit. God Almighty comes into our lives by the Holy Spirit and opens our eyes up to this whole realm. The Holy Spirit wrote of the spiritual blind condition of the world that Jesus was born into in John chapter 1. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness. Blindness is darkness. And the darkness did not comprehend it. The Bible declares of our salvation that when we are saved, we are called out of darkness or blindness into a marvelous light, Peter wrote. But you are a chosen generation a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Elsewhere, the Bible teaches, 2 Corinthians, but even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age, speaking of the devil, has blinded. You can have eyes that can physically see and have a blind mind, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. The book of Ephesians, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Colossians, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. Jesus Himself declared in this vein, in John chapter 3, and this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, 
And men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. So blind Bartimaeus, he sits there on the wayside of, of Jericho. He's blind, he's begging, and he is a picture of all of mankind, spiritually speaking. Now, beggars sitting alongside a road in the ancient world was a very common scene. It's become very common even in our own day. Uh, most of the intersections in Modesto at one time or another, begging has been reintroduced to these main thoroughfares within, within a city. But you can go to much of the world today, anywhere you want to go, and you will find uh, beggars. And so the uh, very common site outside of the city of Jericho, one of the reasons was because Jericho was a very wealthy city. But another reason for the... A great number of beggars that would have been in place outside of Jericho with uh, blind Bartimaeus is that the, the numbers of the beggars would swell at the feast time. Because now you've got a religious crowd that's making their way up and down that road. And religious people, people who believe in God, they tend to be more generous. You also can have people who make up a religious crowd... They're not all uniform. They're all in kind of a different place sometimes in their walk with the Lord. You've got some people who are on their way down that road, and that last year has been a great year. They are so conscious of the grace, grace of God, the goodness of God to them. Lord, you've blessed me so much. Their heart is so full of thanksgiving as they're making their way to Jerusalem. They're just looking for a chance to express it in a physical way. And here are blind beggars, and they get an opportunity to pour coins onto the, the robe that makes up their lap. Then you've got other people on the clear on the other end of the spectrum. They have been naughty, not nice, all year long. They know they haven't been, you know, the good Jew that they were supposed to be. And now they're making their way to the feast and they're going to come face to face to God, with so to, so to speak, and they've got a guilty conscience and all of these kinds of things. And so here is a, a blind beggar that's sitting there and an opportunity within, they'll be in Jerusalem in, in it, the time it takes to cover 15 miles, not very long, and so, final opportunity to do some good, and they're emptying their pockets out into the, in, into the laps of, of, of these, these beggars. So, this was a, a lucrative time to be a beggar. Be like owning a, a shop at Christmas time. You realize, man, we've got to do good in this season because it's got to carry us the rest of the year. And the feasts were those kind of, of days and seasons for, for beggars. And so there he sits, blind Bartimaeus. Money's being dropped into his lap by this crowd. And he thinks, well, it just can't get any better than this, but things are going to get better than he ever imagined. Remember, blind Bartimaeus, he didn't have a gospel of Mark. So he doesn't know how the story ends. We know how the story ends. He didn't wake up and say, oh, good, okay. This is the feast of, of Passover. Jesus is going to go there one more time. This is where I get healed of my blindness. This is the day. He woke up that morning as a day like any other day. 
He's going to head out to his spot. He's going to sit down there. He's going to hope for the best that he can walk away with a good amount of money and that people are going to be generous toward him and God's going to be generous in that kind of a way. He has no dream that his life is going to be changed on that day. And there may be one or two of us that are sitting in this room here today. I don't know why you're in church. You don't know why you're in church. Maybe someone said, listen, come to church I'll take you to Mimi's for brunch afterwards. Maybe they're not as well off. So they said, listen, you come to church with me and I'll walk the aisles of Costco with you afterwards and we'll kind of just munch through the aisles. So people can come to church and they they can come to church and have no expectation that their life could change, that there's the possibility that it would change, that God has the power or the desire for the life to be changed. And God may change your life today. You woke up and it's just going to be a day like any other day. And yet God's got his sights on you. And today's the day that your whole life and your whole eternity is going to change on the basis of putting your faith in Christ. Bartimaeus is a man whose life is completely dominated by his blindness, by his fallenness, by the consequence of the sin of Adam and Eve. Because before their sin in the Garden of Eden, there was no blindness in in the human condition. And so here is Bartimaeus. We even know him affectionately. You ask people about Bartimaeus and they'll almost instantly say, yes, blind Bartimaeus. And one of the things that's interesting for us as human beings is that all of us bear marks of the fall of Adam and Eve in our lives. His predominant thing was physical blindness. But all of us bear a mark, some bit of fallenness, that as we grow older and it gets bigger and it becomes more dominant and as it becomes more pronounced, that that bit of fallenness in our life becomes so big that it now becomes the identifying thing in our lives where people look at us and they, when they think of our name or our face comes up in their mind, the first thing they think of is some wild, crazy aspect that of, of the fall of man that's been introduced into our lives, has taken control of our lives, and now dominates us to such a degree that it's what we're known for in our families, in our neighborhoods, in the workplace. The fact of the matter is we all bear the consequences of that sin in the Garden of Eden. Maybe not physical blindness. Maybe it's an addiction to sin, to drugs or to alcohol or to sex. It might be bitterness. It might be wrath, an angry kind of person, explosive temper, a tendency toward violence. A person may just be a habitual liar and a deceiver. And it starts small. They start to notice it when they're about 8 years old. And then when they're 38 years old, they start to disgust even themselves over how this has taken over their life. And they can't tell a story straight. Not one time. They're always working the angles. They hate themselves for what they are, the basis of the sin person can be terminally selfish or self-centered. A person can be power-hungry. A person can be absolutely dominated by jealousy. 
And one of these things can become our great identity in life to those who know us as much as Bartimaeus' blindness identified him. Humanly speaking, Bartimaeus is hopeless and helpless to change himself. He cannot change himself. You cannot change yourself. I cannot change myself. Jeremiah put it this way. He said, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard hit spots? Then may you also do good who are accustomed to do evil. I recognize it is true in my own life. Notice also that Bartimaeus' condition, his need, is beyond the resources of his fellow men. There's nothing they can do about his fallenness. I mean, the best that they can do is try and make him comfortable in his condition. And it's the same thing with us. No one can do in our lives what God alone can do. Good people, wonderful people, religious people in the best sense of the word, all that they can do is is to try and comfort me or pity me in, in my condition, maybe even give me some kind of level of understanding for why I am the way that I am, but they cannot provide us with the power that is needed to change our lives. Only God can do that. But Bartimaeus' life changed based upon four simple phrases found in our passage. And our lives can change on the basis of the four, same four simple phrases. He heard, he cried out, he came, and he believed or he faithed. Notice in verse 47, he heard. Luke's gospel tells us in his account of this passage that as the crowd was going by that the blind man heard it and asked what it meant. He hears something out of the ordinary. Now, one of the things that we know about any of us that loses one of our senses, and that is that one of our other senses will then try to go into its highest gear to compensate for the loss of a sense. And so often when a person, we're told, has lost their sight, one of the senses that then starts to go into overdrive to compensate is the sense of hearing. It starts, hearing takes on a role for a blind person that it will probably never take on for a person who is sighted because we don't require uh, of our ears what a blind person will require of their ears. For blind Bartimaeus, his two ears are like satellite dishes. They are pulling everything in. They know when someone stops in front of them, when somebody's walking fast by them, when somebody's walking slow by them. They hear money jingle from a hundred yards. They hear money jingle when it's right in front of them. They know when a crowd is a big crowd. They know when it's a few people walking down the road. They know when a crowd is a dense crowd. This guy is used to crowds walking down a road. He is used to crowds walking down a road even during the major feast days. And yet something happens in that crowd 
where there is a murmur that begins to occur in, in that crowd and he becomes aware that something different is happening here that's never happened in a religious crowd on the way to Jerusalem from Jericho ever before. And he's wondering what it is. He can't see it. He can't figure it out yet. And then the news begins to radiate out in his direction. I hope everyone in your childhood has had a chance to throw a great big rock in a pond and watch it make it splash and then watch the waves go out and the sound waves begin to go out to Bartimaeus on the edge and the words that he begins to hear is that it's Jesus of Nazareth who is making his way by. And when he hears those words, I mean a dozen emotions had to explode in his heart. There had to be excitement. There had to be hope. At the same time, there had to be panic and disappointment. There's that hope of, oh my, this is the solution to my problem. And then followed by, oh no, he's going to pass me by. And you know how all this stuff can swirl in your life when you want something so bad and you realize it's probably not going to come my way. And all of this is happening here. This is the one, this is the Jesus that he's been hearing about for three and a half years. The single miracle that Jesus performed as recorded in the scriptures more often than any other miracle was the giving of sight to the blind. It's recorded more often than any other miracle. You can believe that when Jesus started to get a track record for healing the blind that that news radiated out all through the land of Israel, and I'll guarantee you every single blind person knew that about Jesus. And, and as it would spread there, their dream, Bartimaeus' dream, had to be that maybe someday Jesus will come close enough to them that he might heal their blindness. And as Bartimaeus is sitting there, incredibly, unbelievably, the almost impossible has happened to him. And that is Jesus has come within shouting distance. You put yourself in his shoes. It's a lot of fun to be there for a little while. All he's trying to process all at once. And notice what he did, number two, in verses 47 and 48. He began to cry out, I guess so. And the word cried out in the original language of the Greek, it's an interesting word. It literally means to croak. This guy probably hadn't shouted out for a long time. He hadn't used his voice in this way for a long time. He's learning how to project his voice across a crowd. It means to croak or to shriek or to scream. Thayer says it means to cry out, to cry aloud, to vociferate particularly of inarticulate cries. It carries the idea of the desperate cry of an animal. There is a desperation in Bartimaeus's heart as he begins to cry out to the Lord to change his life. Is there a desperation in your life this morning? about the change that needs to occur in your life. That's a good thing. 
That desperation is something that the Lord notices. It's something that Jesus responds to. Notice the response of the crowd to his crying out. They warned him to be quiet, verse 48. The word warn in the original language means more. It means to rebuke, but it means more to, to rebuke. It means to rebuke with the idea of a threat. They're telling him to shut up. And if he doesn't shut up, they'll give him what for. Now, to be blind, to be a blind person being threatened even by one person, you realize, I can't mess with that. They could, they could do whatever they want to me. But for a crowd to issue the same kind of warning, that's a considerable pressure to get Bartimaeus to, to silence him in, in the midst of this. And somehow they think that he's an annoyance as he's crying out, that he's some kind of an embarrassment. You're going to bring the real estate values down in Jericho. It was a very wealthy area. If they find out that we got beggars screaming at, at pilgrims and, and all, you're going to kill the pilgrim business here. But in the face of all of the discouragement to his faith in Jesus, the Bible says, what was his response? He cried out all the more. God bless him. I had a fifth grade teacher by the name of Mr. Hample. I remember all my teachers. I, re I know them by name. God bless those of you who are school teachers. You have an influence. I know you know how influential you are. But it's one of the most influential positions in the culture. Mr. Hample was a wonderful teacher. Irene M. Snow School, Napa, California. And every day we'd begin the classroom the same way. Pledge of Allegiance. Pledge of Allegiance to the flag. That's how the school day started. And then Mr. Hample would ask us to all sit. And then he would do a two-minute, we would call it a devotion as Christians. But at his it was kind of like a motivational talk. And he would give a talk and for every day of the school year, he gave one of those little talks. And do you know that for every single day he taught on the same subject day after day? You know what the subject was? stick to Stick-to-itiveness. I don't remember a single thing beyond the word that he said. I remember him well and his enthusiasm for the subject, though. But he might very well have, in the course of that year, used blind Bartimaeus as an example, and I've forgotten about it. He could have readily used him as, as an example. Don't let anyone keep you from crying out to Jesus to meet the need that the fallenness of Adam and Eve has brought into your life. Don't let father, don't let mother, don't let husband, don't let wife, don't let children, don't let friends, don't let neighbors, don't let teachers, don't let anyone talk you out of crying desperately to the Lord to meet your need and to change your life. And if they do, cry out to Jesus all the more. Now notice in verse 48 he calls Jesus the son of David. That's a messianic title. He is declaring Jesus. He is saying, I recognize Jesus to be the Messiah. On the basis of what? On the basis of the Old Testament Scriptures. See, there, there's an element of seeing is believing in this man's life as well as believing is seeing. The prophet Isaiah declared that when the Messiah came, he would heal the blind of their blindness. 
And he recognized that no one was doing this except for Jesus. And he recognized him to be the Messiah on the basis of those Old Testament prophecies. That he was able to change lives in a way that no one but God could, could do. When I look at Bartimaeus, I see a man who could have had... But life had given him a thousand excuses for giving up on the hope that his life would ever be anything different than it was. But he didn't. And the reason he didn't give in to all of the excuses and say, this is just the way that I am and I just have to accept this and I don't like it and, and these things. And the reason he, he didn't give in to that is because he wasn't a man who was looking for excuses. He was a man who was looking now for a way out of his condition. There's some people in life, it's sad, but they get more excited over being provided an excuse to continue in their sin and fallenness than they do about the news that there is a way to be delivered from that and to be saved from it. And Jesus offers us an opportunity for a changed life. And now we turn our eyes to Jesus and watch what happens. Number three, verse 50, he came to Jesus. Jesus is just going on about his business, thronged by these people. And he begins to hear the shrieking, croaking, screaming of Bartimaeus. You think about what's going on in Jesus' mind at the moment. He's in the middle of a crowd that is just kind of has a life of its own. It is just moving toward Jerusalem. How can he stop this crowd? Could have easily just thought to himself, well, you know, I mean, I can't stop for every beggar that cries out my name. Think about what's on Jesus' mind. In just a little over a week, he's going to have a crown of thorns on his head. He's going to be blasphemed by Jew and Gentile. He's going to be covered with man's spit. He's going to be hanging on a cross. That's what his mind is thinking about right around the corner for him. And yet when he hears the desperate cry of blind Bartimaeus, he stops the whole parade. He stops everything. And everybody stops with him and he calls for Bartimaeus to be brought to him. Bartimaeus then is brought to Jesus. And when we look at Jesus stopping the whole progression I think that it's important for us to realize that this was something that delighted Jesus. Put yourself in Jesus' place. He's so full of love. He's so full of mercy. He's so full of grace. He's so compassionate toward us as fallen human beings. And when you've got as much mercy as Jesus does, the problem is never that you're going to run out of mercy, but rather... In, it's in finding enough people who are willing to take some off your hands. I like what Spurgeon said in this vein. He said, mercy needs misery to give it an occasion to work. And when you cry out to Jesus for salvation this morning, you don't have to worry that Jesus is going to say, Oh, man, I'm tapped out. Can you catch me? Two weeks from Friday when I get paid again. Never happens. Never happens. Jesus will 
bring the whole progression to a stop. In fact, the Bible teaches that when a person cries out to Jesus for salvation, the whole progression, the activity of heaven, comes to a stop in a sanctified sense. It declares that all of the angels in heaven explode into celebration. And more than that, Jesus said that if we will confess him before men, that he will then confess us before the Father. And that confession takes place on the day of our salvation. Faith still brings a stop to Jesus' activity and gains his attention. Imagine what happened in Bartimaeus' heart when he travels through the crowd and, and, and he begins to make his way to Jesus and he's told that, that Jesus is called for him. And he gets up and he begins to make his way to Jesus. And it's very important that he obey Jesus' command to come because Jesus will never go through Jericho again. This is it. The cross is on the other side of this trip. And it's a good thing that Bartimaeus sought the Lord on that day because Jesus was not going to pass that way again. And none of us knows, even in this life, whether we will have another opportunity to cry out to Jesus for salvation. I think that sometimes we can get a little calloused. It's going away a little bit because the United States isn't as dominated by Christianity as it once was. But we can tend to hear about salvation, about forgiveness of sins, about a chance to be forgiven, about a chance to secure a place in heaven, to begin a personal relationship with God. And it's easy for us to think in our affluence and relative security of this culture to think, I'll always have another chance to do that. There'll be another Sunday I'll do that. I'll do it next month. I'll do it tomorrow. And the problem with that is you're not guaranteed tomorrow. I'm not guaranteed tomorrow. All you and I have is today as it relates to salvation. But if we handle it right, all we need is today. And that's why the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Today is the appointed time to put our faith in Christ because we never know when we're going to have an opportunity to do so again. Now, I'd like to tell you a nice story about someone that got hit by a train on their way home from church and they didn't receive Christ. Those kind of things that pull on people's hearts and that kind of a deal. But I don't, if you live in Modesto, you know how fragile life is. You know how quickly things can end. You know in your own history, not just in Modesto, but in this world, you know how crazy this world is getting. Today's the day to seize the opportunity and put my faith in Christ. Because I don't know that I'll have another opportunity to do that. Never ever disregard Jesus' call or his invitation to come to him. I think it's wonderful, and I think about it probably at least on a weekly basis, probably in every two- or three-day basis. I walk through this world just like you do, and I just think to myself, I drive around Modesto, and I drive around lots of different places, and, and busy about things, I just think, Lord, it's amazing what you keep track of every single day in this world. 
You know every one of us current right up to the nanosecond. And the thing that amazes me is the knowledge that every single day God's Holy Spirit is working upon every single life to bring them to a faith in Him. Whether in Bangkok or Buenos Aires or in San Francisco or in Modesto or Empire or Escalon, the Holy Spirit is working to do that in every human life, your life also, extending the invitation of Jesus to come to him. Now notice also, finally, number four, in verses 51 and 52, that he faithed in Jesus or he believed in Jesus. When Bartimaeus was brought to Jesus, Jesus asked him what seems like kind of a crazy question. Jesus asked him the question, what do you want me to do for you? Think, what, why would Jesus ask that? What is, what is Bartimaeus going to say except what he said? Listen, I'd like the seven numbers to the next lotto thing because then, man, I'll be so rich I'll be able to even buy a house in Jericho and never... Jesus knows exactly what Bartimaeus is going to ask for. He's going to ask for his sight. But Jesus is doing a couple of things here, and they're important. First, he's giving Bartimaeus a chance to publicly declare his faith in Jesus. So that when Jesus changes his life, that entire crowd will know who he is, and not just blind Bartimaeus. And second, Jesus is literally opening the storehouse of heaven to this kind of faith. What do you want me to do for you? You name it. And his request, Rabboni, that I may receive my sight. That's an expression of his faith and his confidence that Jesus could do it, that Jesus would, could change his life, that nothing was too difficult for him to do. And Jesus healed him of his blindness, and Bartimaeus received his sight. And notice Bartimaeus' response at the end of verse 52. Bartimaeus cried out and said, I'm going to head straight to Best Buy's and get the biggest plasma TV I can afford. I got 30 years worth of television and movies to catch up on. Wouldn't that be sad? That was the rest of the story? How he's going to use his eyes now? No, he expressed his gratitude for Jesus changing his life by becoming one of his followers. I love it. Jesus said, go your way. And in effect, Bartimaeus said, uh, Rabboni, you are my way. I'm following you. And so he did. Do you think about, sometimes we tend to only think about salvation in terms of what it means to us and how it blesses our lives, and it does that. But you think about how much the faith of Bartimaeus must have meant to Jesus at this time. The cross right around the corner. All of the hardship, all of it, and for him to realize, which of course he realized, but to see it, demonstrated in this way that there are men and women who will listen, who will appreciate, who will desire that the consequences of that fall be undone in their life, that their lives be changed and be made into something altogether different. If there are but one of them or two of them, it will be worth it to supply them 
with that hope and with that change. And think about the world today, and it's much like the world 2,000 years ago. It largely rejects Jesus. But I can't answer for what the world is going to do with their faith or what they think about Jesus. Only faith I have control over is my own faith. And I'm thankful that he's given me an opportunity to use it in a way that blesses his heart and brings him pleasure by making him my Savior and my Lord. Of blind Bartimaeus, we're told, he cried out, he first, rather, he heard, he cried out, he came, and he believed, or he faithed. And the Bible declares of every one of us that there is a changed life to be received on this other side of that same progression. You've heard about Jesus this morning now. You've heard enough to put your faith in him. Now cry out to him and come to him this morning. Put your faith in him for salvation. And then watch what your believing produces physically, seeing-wise in your life. Believing will become seeing. As the Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That's what he does in a human life. How does a person do it? By just coming to the Lord this morning and looking up to God and just saying, God, I believe your assessment of me. I confess that I am a sinner in need of salvation. I've been less than perfect all my life, and I am not surprised that heaven is so holy and that you are so holy that but one sin would separate me from that relationship and from heaven itself. But God, I'm also thankful that you loved me so much that you sent your Son into this world to die on that cross for my sins and that he was buried and rose again on the third day. And I put my trust in that salvation and in that Savior that pleases you. I repent. I turn from my old ways. And I put my faith again in that Savior and in that salvation. And when a person does that, God's Holy Spirit comes into that person's life. And now you are going to see what he does on the other side of faith without exception in your life, the changes that he will make. There isn't any sin that he won't forgive. There isn't a single life that he can't change. And we need to know that because we live in a culture that is in terrible bondage to sin in a way that is historically new for this nation. Wouldn't it be terrible if you gave your life to Christ and then and, and said, okay, I want to put my faith in Christ, and then you kind of heard a conversation in heaven. Oh, man, I think this guy's like 50-50. I don't know if we can get this guy turned around. Never happens. God's able to change any of our lives. With salvation, seeing is believing. God has given us ample reason for putting our faith in Jesus. But salvation also has an element of believing is seeing. As you put your faith in Jesus for salvation, your faith will be immediately followed by a changed life that changes that 
only the Holy Spirit can bring into a human life. And up in front immediately after our service are going to be men and women with a badge on that says prayer so that you can identify them easily. And they would love to answer your questions this morning and to pray with you to begin that relationship with Christ. God will be faithful to his side of things in your life. And not only will God save you, but he will thoroughly enjoy himself in saving you. There's hope for you. There's hope for us. But it's found only in Christ. But the doorway is wide open to any of us to be saved because of the cross of Christ. Take advantage of the opportunity this morning. Let's stand together and we'll pray now. Father, those of us who know you and have known you for a long time, we just want to take time as we look at this passage this morning just to say thank you for the change that you have brought into our lives, the miracle that we have become because of you and the work of your Holy Spirit in our lives. Thank you, Lord, that our lives demonstrate the fact that there is no hard case for you, certainly no impossible case for you. Thank you that you have made our lives a testimony to the greatness of your love and the greatness of your grace, and that if you're willing to save and change us, that the world can draw hope that you're able and willing, Lord, to change their lives too. Thank you, Lord, today for our salvation story. Thank you for stopping the parade when we cried out in desperation to you on that day or on that night. And thank you for changing our lives, Lord, as we came to you. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege of knowing from your Bible that we don't have to wonder whether you'll accept us or not when we come to you, but we have the confidence that you will accept anyone. Lord, we don't take that for granted. There's a lot of people that won't accept us anymore because of our sin. Amazing to think that you would. Lord, we pray that you would save many here today, that they would come forward and enter into this life that you have for them. Do a miracle, Lord, in each one that reaches out to you in faith. And we ask these things of you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.